0: Welcome to Biocentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of Biocentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief.
1: Steve
2: Austin, Washington Editor.
1: Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor.
0: On today's pod, the Inflation Reduction Act prompts alnylam to reconsider an orphan indication for one of its drugs. Argenix's first mover advantage in myasthenia Gravis. And Accumulus Synergy is aiming to bring interactions between drug companies and regulators and among regulators into the 21st century. We'll find out how. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit, scheduled for November 14th through 16th in Simone's old hometown of Redwood City, California, in the San Francisco Bay Area. There'll also be two bonus days of virtual one-on-one partnering meetings. This VIP event brings together U.S., European, and Asian biotech executives to debate globalization strategies. Register to attend on our website, BiocentryEastwest.com. We hope to see you in November at the Summit. And coming up this week on the BioCentury Show, Andy Plump, president of R&D at Takeda, joins Simone in conversation. Plump joined Takeda in 2015 and has driven a turnaround to innovative R&D at the pharma via a series of deals, often with early stage companies, including build-to-buy deals that brought in new modalities and technologies. Looking forward to that, Simone. All righty. Biopharmas and investors have been warning of the Inflation Reduction Act's potential to hurt patients. That has been theoretical until last week when Alnylam became the first company to announce that it may abandon plans to add an indication to an orphan drug's label. Steve, you dug into this last week. Break down the company's thinking for us.
2: So, stepping back a couple of paces, this is all based on a kind of peculiar provision that's in the Inflation Reduction Act, which provides an exemption from price setting for drugs that are approved for a single orphan indication. That means that if a drug is approved for more than one orphan indication, it could be subject to price setting under the Inflation Reduction Act. Alnilam has a drug that's approved for one orphan indication already. And it has reason to believe that this drug could be very effective for a second indication. That second indication is a disease called Stargardt's disease, which causes blindness. They've already conducted a phase one trial that they say provides a great deal of hope to believe that amvutra could be an effective treatment for patients who have Stargardt's disease. They announced last week that they're not going to conduct a phase three trial, which they had previously planned to conduct because they don't want to risk losing the single orphan exemption from the Inflation Reduction Act.
3: So Steve, obviously this is a very big deal because it is, I think, the first known out there example of the potential impact of the Inflation Reduction Act on innovative drug development. Do you think this is something that we're going to hear more and more about? Do you think that Alnylam is making the statement in order to send messages, let's say, to lawmakers, lobbyists, whatever, here is the real impact?
2: I think that Alnylam made the statement because they were planning on launching this phase 3 trial this year. There's not much more of this year left, and they've been guiding for for some time that they were going to do this trial. So they had to explain why they're not doing it. It's got to be a gut punch to patients who have Stargardt disease. It's a terrible disease, it's progressive. That means that people who had hoped to be on this trial and had some expectation that it might help them are going to continue to lose vision, and that's vision that they probably are never going to get back. I think that it's a, it's a terrible and, and heartbreaking thing for patients. Yes, we're gonna see other companies making similar announcements. When I wrote a story about this in September, I noted that there's another drug from Global Blood Therapeutics, Oxbrita, that's been approved for sickle cell, It's also being tested in clinical trials for various forms of lung damage to help patients who have damaged lungs. Pfizer has acquired global blood. There's a very good chance that Pfizer is going to drop those trials or that it's not going to pursue that indication because the sickle cell indication is far larger. and, And again, it's an orphan indication. If Pfizer were to expand the label and put the indications for helping patients with acute lung damage onto the label, they would lose their exemption, their price-setting exemption for the sickle cell indication. And it's very difficult to think that they would make that decision.
3: Steve, I'm sure that for every company that makes this decision, it's not an easy decision to make because they know, as you say, what a gut punch this is for patients. So Steve, let's just Understand for people listening to this because it is quite complicated. For companies with a drug improved in one indication, if they go after the second indication, for the first indication where it's already approved, they lose the ability to be excluded from the list of drugs that could be subject to price setting.
2: The simplest way to think about it is this if you have one and only one orphan indication, your drug is exempt from price setting. If you add a second indication, whether it's an orphan indication or not, your drug becomes subject potentially to price setting for all of its indications. So this could cost a company potentially billions of dollars, depending on the amount of sales that they have to Medicare.
3: Right, so it's not like they can just say, well, we'll charge a little bit less for the first indication and we'll get under the threshold or something because you're saying for the totality of their revenues, it would they'd be subject to presenting.
2: All of their revenues for that drug, that drug would be subject to, to a negotiated or what I'm calling price regulated, a regulated price. The other thing that's interesting about this is that the, the calculation that alnylam has made and dropping this indication seems to be based on the assumption that the price that Medicare is going to set is very, very low. Alnylam and other companies are acting as if the price that Medicare is going to set is going to be something that would be similar to what generic competition would mean, basically that the rug's going to get pulled out from underneath them. It remains to be seen whether that is true. The administration hasn't said how it's going to implement the price setting provisions of the inflation reduction act. And I think that's something that's going to be really important going forward is to understand what kind of pricing discount the Biden administration is going to impose on drugs.
1: And Steve, can you just remind me how much certainty do companies have at this point that their drug would come under these price setting controls. And just in terms of the ramp up of the program, you know how many drugs are expected to be covered in the first year? and is the idea that eventually all drugs would be under this or or is there sort of revenue thresholds that have to be met?
2: There is a revenue threshold. It's two hundred and fifty million dollars in annual sales adjusted for inflation. Then there's a number of drugs. There's a certain number of drugs that are going to be subject to price setting in the first year. That's in 2026. It's going to be a larger number in the next year and a larger number in the next year and so on. According to calculations that uh, No Patient Left Behind has made, that's an advocacy organization that is backed by RA Capital's Peter Kolchinsky, They think that basically any drug that's sold to Medicare that has annual revenues, Medicare revenues exceeding $250 million will be potentially subject to price setting starting around 2030. The only exceptions are going to be drugs that have a single orphan indication, so they'll be exempt, and also drugs that are blood products or plasma products because they're also exempt.
3: Dave, one thing that we've talked about on the podcast before is the potential for this act still to get changed in future Congresses. Is this a part of the act that could be amended without upending the whole principle of what they're trying to do with, with drug pricing in terms of reining it in, or is this really a fundamental part of it? What I'm saying is how much opportunity is there for change here?
2: I think that there's opportunity for change here. It wouldn't be an enormous change for Congress to say, for example, that any drug that only has orphan indications, regardless of the number of orphan indications, would be exempt from the price-setting provisions of the IRA. That's what the Every Life Foundation is lobbying to have Congress do. There would be a cost to that to the federal government, and presumably anybody who's advocating for that would have to come up with an offset so that it would be revenue neutral, but it doesn't seem like an enormous stretch for Congress to do that. The problem is that just like the fact that biopharma companies have to assume that the prices that are going to be set under the IRA are going to be very low, even though they don't know 100% that that's the case, I think that companies also have to make decisions now assuming that the single orphan exemption is going to stay the same until it isn't.
3: Right. And, you know, that's such a good point because this has come up in various conversations about various things this week with the uncertainty that we face globally and all kinds of things. But investors need to make decisions right now. Companies also need to make decisions right now for things that may or may not happen in two, three, four years down the line. There's commitment of resources. And as you say, clinical trials have to be set in motion. That's a big commitment of money. So definitely kind of a sobering moment.
2: I think so and and to me the thing it's really getting back to to what I said at the start it's the most shocking is what the impact of this is on on Stargard's patients. Elnylum has said that they're going to try to find a path forward. They haven't specified what that might be, but they also noted that they have a platform, and they have some flexibility in developing compounds. Perhaps they're thinking about developing a new molecule that would be specifically for Stargardt's disease. I don't know how quickly they could do that. I don't know how much it would cost and whether they could justify the cost of doing that, but you would hope that they would find some way forward. You know, they, they've said that they believe that they have a, an approach that can help these patients. And I think that they feel, and I think that they do have a, an obligation to find a way to, to help them if they think that they can.
0: All right. And Steve, of course, uh, has been following the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act for the past few weeks and will continue to do so. So uh, seek out his stories on biocentury.com. Before moving on to Argenics, I want to give a quick plug for our latest survey, as it's an important one, particularly for U.S. biopharmas. Bio is searching for new leadership amid a certain amount of recent turmoil. So we are conducting an independent survey to understand the biotech community's needs, hopes, expectations for the organization and its leadership. The survey is anonymous and results will be published in BioCentury. Go to biocenturysurvey.com. All righty. Uh, proved last December, Vivgart is off to a strong start. Argenix reported 131 million in third quarter sales for the first in class FcRn antagonist last week. That's a 75 percent increase quarter over quarter. Stephen, Argenix appears to have the makings of a strong launch. Here, you spoke to their CEO recently. How is the company approaching this launch?
1: Thanks, Jeff. Well, basically, they've, they've I had the had the luxury, maybe is one way to put it, of having raised enough capital that they can tackle multiple sort of pillars at one time. And I think that's what has led to a lot of the strength that we've seen from them. So they've gone after both patient and payer focused approach. Really, that's been supported by the more than $3 billion in capital that they've been able to raise since the start of 2020. I'm um, speaking to Tim Van Hauermeyer, the CEO. He explained that one of the things that they first did when they were preparing for this launch was to study actually another launch by another biotech, Horizon Therapeutics, which launched TAPESA in uh, thyroid eye disease in 2020 and is think kind of widely regarded as one of the most successful launches by biotech in the past several years. And he noted that one of the things that they did and that they did very well and that, and that Argenix also employed was very early on doing a direct-to-consumer campaign. He said that that was a key component to really getting broad understanding from the Myasthenia Gravis community that VivGuard was available and really making physicians knowledgeable about it being available so they could start the education process.
3: It's interesting, Stephen, because uh, Argenix, which is a Belgian company, you know, been around since 2008. Obviously, that was financial crisis, so maybe it took a little bit of a while to get going. And I don't know, it feels like they've been around a long time. And suddenly I sort of turned around a few months ago and I'm like, wait, they're above $20 billion market cap? What What happened there sort of thing? And I think obviously some people are watching this space and some farmers I know have been watching this company. I think it is also on your list of potential takeout targets for Biogen, maybe somebody else. Tell us a little bit about that growth path and was it really based on this one product that it's built up that market cap? How robust do you think its pipeline, its platform are?
1: Yeah, so Eugenics has a, um, uh, it's a camel based antibody fab platform that I think, like a lot of other of these sort of platform companies, wouldn't say a slow start, but more maybe more of a European start, and that they they initially listed on Euronext, you know, and raised a little bit of money, but really you saw them start to take off when they listed on Nasdaq, which I think was in 2014 or 2015, and really started to build out the pipeline with Fcartigimod, Vivgard, this program, but then they also had a a really good CD70 program that was partnered with J and J for a while that. Got a lot of interest as well. But I think what really drives this one in particular is the fact that not only have they shown pretty excellent data in in Myasthenia Gravis, but they're now developing it out. They have, I think, 10 different clinical indications that are in development. So there really are, I think investors see this as one of these pipeline and a product type of franchises that's across and sort of related to kind of what Steve was talking about earlier here on IRA. Myasthenia gravis is in orphan indications, but quite a large orphan indication. And they're looking at numerous other orphan indications. I think they're already in four other phase three trials. So, you know, they really see the potential to build this out into being a potentially multi-billion dollar product, which in this industry can be something of a rare thing.
3: Especially, let's call it like it is, especially for European companies, we just don't see that many European companies at that valuation. That's right. Less than the fingers on one hand, I could probably say.
1: And that's why I think they've been able to raise the capital that they have. You know, when other companies have been struggling to raise money, I mean, they were doing $1 billion follow on raises. And I think it's just investors just really see the potential for that product. And then they're trying to bring other ones along sort of behind that, trying to have repeat performance as well. All right. Thanks for that, Stephen. We will continue to watch the launch
0: and. Well, who knows? Uh, as Stephen said, could be a takeout target, would command quite the price tag given that uh, valuation. All right, to Cumulus Synergy. Steve, tell us about this nonprofit.
2: So it's really interesting. It fits into the category of what I call unglamorous, but really important work that's being done in the biopharma industry. It's a company that was started kind of as a result of remarks that Janet Woodcock made at a meeting in 2019, when she was talking to R&D heads of some of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. And she basically said that progress in the industry was being hindered by the communications technologies that regulators use. Analogy that I use in the, in the story is that it would be like flying a, a precious cargo halfway around the world in a jet plane and then piling it all up onto a donkey cart what happens with drug development is you have companies that are developing medicines using the most sophisticated techniques to visualize and analyze the data and then they transfer those results onto paper or PDFs and um, send those static documents to regulators and you can imagine that they you know that they can't analyze them they can't manage this data in a modern way when they're dealing with paper and PDFs. So Cumulus Synergy was created to solve this problem. It's backed by a dozen multinational pharmaceutical companies. It's a nonprofit. They're creating a platform that's going to create a kind of a cloud-based solution where companies can put clinical and non-clinical data in real time or near real time make it available to um, regulators around the world. It also will allow regulators to communicate back to the companies, and there'll be a space on there where regulators can communicate with each other.
3: Steve, Janet Woodcock seems to be all over the place trying to modernize systems and increase efficiencies in drug development and regulation. Is this part of a mission for her? How, How do you see this?
2: It's definitely complementary to things that she's doing at FDA, and she told me that it is. One of the things that I found really interesting is what she said about how this can play into modernizing manufacturing. So she said that right now, if a company has manufactured a drug, wants to make a change in the way that it's manufactured, it has to apply to every regulatory agency where that drug is sold. It may be that there are 50 regulatory agencies around the world, and it can't make the change until it gets the sign-off from the slowest of those regulatory agencies. And in many cases, that can take a a, a great deal of time. It's a huge disincentive to making changes in manufacturing, to updating manufacturing. Accumulus Energy is supposed to solve that because it will Blast out and make it possible to blast out a a request to make a change and all of the data to support that in a common format to regulatory agencies all over the world simultaneously. The other thing that she said is that it could support an even bigger change. Basically, the idea that you could have a single standard for manufacturing a drug and for the quality standard for what that drug is around the world. That doesn't sound like a big deal until you realize that right now, regulators around the world have different requirements around the manufacturing of drugs. And the drug that is manufactured in one facility might have to have separate lines, separate manufacturing lines to meet the requirements for selling that drug, say in Europe, in Japan, in the United States. And then you can't be completely sure that that drug is actually the same in all of those places. So what Dr. Woodcock said is that by creating these collaboration around quality standards for drugs, cumulative Synergy could actually solve that problem as well. So you could have much faster drug development. You could have much better coordination and collaboration around assessing manufacturing quality and you could have a much faster iteration of post-manufacturing changes to drugs as a result of this. One other thing that I learned in the the course of uh, reporting on this story is that typically drug companies over the lifetime of a medicine are gonna end up filing for approvals in about 150 countries over seven to 10 years. Only 20 of those countries accept that data electronically. All of the rest of them right now require paper documents. So again, one of the things that this the Cumulus Synergy will do if it's successful is it will kind of democratize data communication for all these regulatory agencies. They'll be able to go straight into um, receiving the data electronically and to be able to do the same kind of analysis of that data as the more sophisticated and better funded regulatory agencies do routinely now.
0: All right, thanks for that, Steve. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.